Hello, listeners. Just a brief introduction about today's episode because I wanted to explain how I met today's guest. I just returned from two weeks in Israel studying their approach to urban operations to include both urban and underground warfare. Our team went with the Israeli Defense Force, of course, but also multiple different Israeli police organizations like the Blue Police or the Magab, you can call the Green Police, but also special forces, doctrine writers, historians, many, many others. And I can't thank Dr. Jacob Stoll from SAMS, our lead planner, escort, translator, connector, motivator, you name it. I can't thank him enough. I also can't thank the Israeli leads like Lieutenant Colonel Gilad Avignon, who just left at the U.S. Army Tradoc Elno from Israel, or Eyal Berkelovich, countless others like Tal from the Magav or Shlomi from the Israeli police. I just can't thank everybody enough. Hopefully, I'll be releasing a bunch more podcasts with guests I met during the trip. But how I met today's guest was kind of unique, but I found out not quite unique in the Israeli way. It was our second to last day and we had in country. In our last day, we were going to basically self-guided tours. Our group had started to make the return flights or there was only three of us left. And we were actually having lunch with my friend Slomi from the Israeli police. And he asked, well, what are you guys going to do? I told him that we had a couple of ideals, but definitely open to his suggestions. And he said, you must go see the city of David, ancient Jerusalem. I had no clue what he was talking about, and that's probably my fault because we were sitting in a cafe in old city Jerusalem. But then he said, wait, I know a guy, let me check. And he picked up his phone, he started texting. And I had learned from my trip that this was how many things worked in Israel. It's about connections, knowing a person, friends, very tight communities. Within minutes, Slomi said, here, text my friend and he'll meet you there tomorrow and give you a tour. I had no idea who his friend was or the once in a lifetime tour I was about to experience. And that's how I met today's guest, Zia. So sit back and enjoy the show. You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Yev Ornstein. He's the Director of International Affairs at the City of David, Ancient Jerusalem. Zeev, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. If you don't mind, I thought we'd start with some very basic background on what is the City of David, Ancient Jerusalem, and what is your role there? So Jerusalem has significance for billions of people around the world from multiple faiths and backgrounds. And yet up until 150 years ago, when people thought, where is the original biblical city of Jerusalem, the city of David, this place where Jerusalem began, associated with people like King David, King Solomon, prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, of course, from a Christian perspective, people like Jesus as well. And when people were thinking, where is that Jerusalem? As you mentioned, everyone thought it was the old city of Jerusalem. So for all your listeners, if you kind of close your eyes and imagine Jerusalem, the things that maybe come to mind are sites like the Temple Mount, the Golden Dome of the Rock, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Western Wall, the Via Della Rosa, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the Garden Tomb, which are pretty much all surrounded by the old city walls. Now, the old city itself, those walls are only about 450 years old. The Western Wall, for instance, is about 2,000 years old, but Jerusalem is about 4,000 years old. So clearly there was something going on before the old city. And yet until 1867, everyone just assumed that the old city was biblical Jerusalem until Queen Victoria of England wants to discover the treasures of the Bible, the Ark of the Covenant, for instance. And so she sends a man by the name of Captain Charles Warren to the Holy Land to find those treasures. Now, if you want to go to one place in the Holy Land to find the treasures of the Bible, 
you'll go to Jerusalem, which is what Charles Warren does. He then goes to the Temple Mount, the biblical Mount Moriah, the site where the Temple of Solomon stood. And then when that was destroyed by the Babylonians two and a half thousand years ago, the temple that was rebuilt and which is known today as the Temple of King Herod, the temple that stood during the time of Jesus. And he says, I want to excavate on the Temple Mount is one of the holiest sites in the world, certainly probably the most sensitive piece of real estate on the planet. And at that time, the Ottomans, the Muslims are controlling the area. And they say to Charles Warren, we're sure you're a great guy, but you are not going to dig up the Temple Mount. And today, due to religious sensitivities, political sensitivities, there has been virtually no archaeological activity on the Temple Mount. So Charles Warren says, listen, I can't go back to the queen empty-handed. Uh, I have to have something to show for my efforts. And so he says, if I can't excavate on the Temple Mount, I will do the next best thing, which is to excavate near it. So he comes down the slopes of Mount Moriah, of the Temple Mount, and he's walking through the Kidron Valley, just below the Temple Mount. And he comes across the Gihon Spring, which has been flowing from when we were there together just a couple of weeks ago, going back thousands of years. And he sees it's flowing through an ancient man-made tunnel. Now, he doesn't realize it, and this is something we'll come back to, I guess, a little bit later, but he begins walking through a tunnel engineered some 2,700 years ago. And he's curious, where does this tunnel lead? He begins walking through this pitch black tunnel, carrying a torch, and at a certain point, the flames of the torch begin to flicker wildly. He looks above his head, he sees a shaft going up into the mountainside. He climbs up the shaft, finds himself amidst a network of underground tunnels filled with antiquities dating back thousands of years. And he comes up with a theory. And the theory is that everyone believes that the original biblical city of Jerusalem, the city of David, is located inside the walls of the old city of Jerusalem. Charles Warren says, I believe everyone's wrong. I believe that it's actually outside the walls of the old city, just south of the Temple Mount, right next to the spring, where there's all the fortifications and antiquities that Charles Warren found. And one of the main reasons, aside from his familiarity with the Bible, was Charles Warren said from an urban planning perspective, in ancient times, certainly 3,000 years ago during the time of King David, or going back 4,000 years ago when the Canaanites first established the city, if you wanted to live somewhere, you had to live next to the water. So Charles Warren says, the water is down here in the valley, not up by the old city. The city must have been next to the Gihon Spring, and therefore the original city of Jerusalem, the city of David, is the place where Jerusalem began. The only problem with that was that when he announces it to the world some 150 years ago, everyone thought he was crazy. Why? Because at that time, the city of David was a barren 11-acre ridge. And everyone said, scholar and layman alike, that you're crazy. The original Jerusalem must be the old city because that's where everything is. But it turns out over the next 150 years of archaeological excavation, the city of David becomes one of the most archaeologically excavated sites in the world, the most excavated site in Israel. And today, everyone knows that the original biblical city of Jerusalem, the city of David, is the place where Jerusalem began located just outside the walls of the old city. We had lost Jerusalem only to rediscover it, relatively speaking, in modern times, the Jerusalem that has significance, not for millions, but for billions around the world. Wow. One, even hearing it the second time is still almost, I wouldn't say unbelievable, but I feel wrong for not knowing that this even exists after all images I have of Jerusalem and of the old city up on this high, almost ridge mountaintop and now having visited you in this active archaeological site. And let's, let me be upfront on, okay, John Spencer from the Modern War Institute. Why are you doing a, a podcast about something 4,000 years ago? And I think all listeners will learn very quickly how what you taught me from visiting the site from urban planning to this historical 
most holiest site on the planet and how many armies have fought over it and arguably are still fighting over it today, how much it has applicability to warfare today, to the political environment, to actual tactics of urban planning, urban warfare, underground warfare. And let's just start with the Gihon Spring, which when you tell me, one, you you don't have civilization without that one life source of actual water, and that makes sense, and you're not going to have ancient cities without there being water sources, as most of them talk about Mesopotamia, you know, all the even cities today, they're along water streams. And this seems to be a city out in the middle of the desert. But actually, I found out after visiting, yeah, it's the desert, but the water table is right below you. It's actually not far. Still, even though you walking me down the tunnel to see the Gihon Spring and to hear it rushing like this giant, when I think spring, I think a little, little water's coming out. It's this giant gushing body of water just flowing like crazy. You know, it's it's an amazing thing that when people think of the Bible, they think of, I don't know, uh, spirituality, they think of God, they think of commandments and so on. But the Bible was written for real people. And it was written in a time where real people, just like you and me were living, uh, who had the same challenges that we have today, both on a political level, on a military level, on a personal level. And so when you're establishing a city, the cities that were established in biblical times, like Jerusalem, had the same considerations that we would have today, which is how are you going to defend yourself? Where are you getting your water and other natural resources from? I mean, it's, it's all the same considerations. And so perhaps the person who's most synonymous with Jerusalem is none other than King David. And it is one of the great stories of how you could see urban planning and urban warfare are actually incredibly relevant to the development of Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem, the Bible recounts that for probably a good three centuries, no one is able to conquer this city. It is a Canaanite stronghold. It is surrounded by massive walls and fortifications, which archaeologists over the last century continue to discover. You're talking about walls and fortifications that are more than seven stories high. And you're talking about building these things without cranes and other technology that we take for granted today. And so this was a heavily defended city. It's up on a ridge. On each side are valleys, which means in order to come up and try to conquer Jerusalem, you're going uphill, which is why the Canaanites were so confident that when David comes some 3,000 years ago, in order to conquer the city, the Bible recounts how the Canaanites, they're taunting him. They're saying, we could put our blind and our lame on the walls of the city, and you still won't be able to conquer it. That's how strong the defenses were. And so the Bible recounts that what does King David say? King David says, whoever wants to conquer the Canaanite stronghold must strike at the water channel. Now, what we saw together, John, was you have this spring. Literally sitting on top of the spring is a massive, almost 4,000-year-old, more than seven stories tall stone fortress. It sits right on top of the spring, which means the only way to get to the spring is somehow going through this fortress, and then you have the walls going around the rest of the city. The only access to the water is coming from inside the city. So King David realizes he has a problem because if he tries to scale the walls, it's a suicide mission. So how is he going to conquer a city that is so well defended, is so well fortified? And what the Bible alludes to and what David says, he says, whoever is able to penetrate the water channel to conquer the city, that person will become my chief of staff. And the Bible recounts that there's a man named Joab, son of Tzriah. He leads, let's call it the equivalent of Delta Force or Navy SEALs, into an irrigation channel that ran just beneath the fortification of the massive fortress, which would take the waters from the spring and that would go out and irrigate the fields outside the city. 
somehow David's forces are able to penetrate this irrigation channel. They conquer the spring, they conquer the fortress, and once they have the spring and the fortress, the rest of the city just falls right afterwards. But perhaps the most famous and significant city in the world was conquered by perhaps one of the most famous people in all of history, King David, through subterranean, underground, urban warfare, through using tunnels and understanding the need to conquer the resources, to somehow bypass the above ground fortifications, that is how Jerusalem was conquered some 3,000 years ago. Uh, and the rest, as we say, when it comes to Jerusalem and King David, is history. And what's actually funny in that story is the Bible is very vague about how David conquers Jerusalem. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is because who's living in the city after King David conquers it, which is none other than King David and his descendants. And so what exactly was the weak point of Jerusalem and its defenses? That's what you would probably call in the military uh, need-to-know information. And since it wasn't need-to-know for pretty much anyone other than David and the defenders of Jerusalem, the Bible is very vague on exactly how he does it. But again, somehow he penetrates the underground tunnel system beneath the spring, beneath the fortress. And once he does that, the city falls right into his hands. Yeah. So even you telling me, again, the story the second time is still mind-blowing. One, not only mind-blowing at the execution of this, but the fact that I did not know, and hey, I'm not a historian and my dear friend Jacob Stoyle is, and he often says, you know, what you're talking about isn't really new. It happened here, 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 here. As an underground warfare student, not scholar, because I'll, I'll consider my friend Daphne Richmond Barak there in Israel as a scholar. I'm a student of it. And when I've written about it, everybody says, that's yeah, not new. Let's go back to the great Jewish revolt of the 66, 670 AD, the Jerusalem people fighting against the Romans, attacking from getting into the tunnels. And I think we're going to talk about that because even more has been found at the city of David. But while I was there, I visited Masada, which again, during the revolt, siege warfare can be seen through that. We even went to the Barcoba tunnels, which are more tunnels as I, you know, I'm just trying to immerse myself in the history of tunnel warfare. Most of what I know about a lot of it, ancient tunnel warfare is this almost defensive aspect of it. You're getting into the tunnels so that it's really hard for the attacker to get you. This is an offensive use of tunnels. And like you said, almost a Navy SEAL Delta Force operation. And that tunnel still exists today. And unfortunately, I didn't get to walk it next time. I'm absolutely walking it through the Gihon Spring and the whole measurement of it. I don't think people can appreciate the seven-story fortress around this spring, which is an offset of the actual fortress walls of a city. You know, we're talking ancient city defenses, giant walls, and I know that it's almost an engineering marvel. You're talking thousand pound stone, seven stories tall, and, and you can actually go in into your site and, and see that and stand at the top and say, that's what it felt like to look up at the top and people launching spears and stones down and realistically pretty easily defendable, especially now before the age of artillery and all that. But to think that they found this secret entrance into the city through a tunnel and covertly inserted operatives to assist in the, what I call in the city attack. It's mind blowing. They didn't know it. And number one reason why I wanted, for many reasons, I wanted to do this podcast was that story. I mean, just amazing. One of the things that I think certainly in the military, what you study, whether it's at West Point or, or the other war colleges, is you study the, the battles that came before you, because that's where you're going to learn tactics that have been used in the past, tactics that work, tactics that don't work anymore, that we are all students of history, whether it comes to history and archaeology and Bible, or whether it comes to 
military and strategy or urban planning and urban warfare, there's a saying in the Bible, which is there's nothing new under the sun. And the more that we're able to learn from those who came before us, the wiser we are able to be in whatever it is we are trying to do in our lives. And so one of the incredible things about the history of Jerusalem, certainly in terms of urban warfare and urban planning, is that there's so much to learn from the Bible in a way that most people don't relate to the Bible, because most people relate to the Bible and archaeology is okay. It's, it's history for people who like things that happened ancient civilizations. But when we're talking about urban warfare and you could open up the stories of the Bible, like King David and a few others that we'll touch upon in a moment and say, wait a minute, there's actually strategy that we can learn from today. And that's an incredible thing because there's really wisdom, whether that wisdom is going back to World War II or World War I or, you know, the battles of Sparta and so on. You could also go back to the times of the Bible. And there's, in fact, wisdom to be gleaned when it comes to military tactics and strategy there as well. Uh, the Bible, yes, has what to offer huma humanity in a spiritual sense, but it also has a lot of practical wisdom in many other areas of life that people don't necessarily think to check out what the Bible might have to say. And another example of that, when we saw the spring flowing through that tunnel, if we fast forward about 300 years after King David, now you have the Assyrian Empire, which is marching its way through the region, literally conquering the entire, what you'd call the Middle East, going uh, from modern day Iran, Iraq, and just going straight across the region. And they come to Jerusalem and they surround the city. The Bible recounts that 185,000 soldiers ultimately come and besiege the city. Now, Hezekiah knows that war is approaching. And the Bible recounts that Hezekiah says, why should the king of Assyria come and find much water? What's the problem? Hezekiah, descendant of King David, 2,700 years ago, he understands what's going to happen. The Assyrian army is going to come to Jerusalem. They're going to conquer and capture the Gihon Spring. And just like the way David conquered Jerusalem, once you have the spring, you have the city. So Hezekiah says, we have a problem because the fortress that's still defending the spring, that is already about a thousand years old. That is like going to war today with bows and arrows. He says it's not going to cut it against the Assyrian army at that time, certainly the most powerful army the world had ever seen to date. And so what does Hezekiah do? He undertakes a four-year engineering project to divert the waters of the Gihon Spring to flow entirely within the walls and the defenses of the city of David, of Jerusalem, engineering a 533-meter-long tunnel without GPS, without radar technology, and somehow the two teams of diggers, of engineers, one coming from each side, they somehow managed to meet in the middle. And there's actually an inscription that you can find today in the Istanbul Archaeology Museum. It's an inscription written in ancient Hebrew text, which talks about the moment where the two teams of engineers, where they meet in the middle and they celebrate. And I say half jokingly that what does this inscription say in short? OMG, oh my God, we actually somehow, without GPS, without radar, connected in the middle of a more than 500 meter long tunnel to protect the waters of Jerusalem. And what ends up happening is the Assyrians come, and whether you take the biblical account, which speaks of a plague wiping out the Assyrian army, or you take the Assyrian account, which archaeological records, such as in the Taylor's Prism, recount that there was political instability back in Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, he takes his army and goes home. But either way, Jerusalem is saved. And one of the key reasons that allowed Jerusalem to hold out against the Assyrian siege was this urban 
warfare, the defensive planning of protecting the water source through the engineering of a more than 500 meter long tunnel to protect the waters of Jerusalem. So whether it's King David 3000 years ago, King Hezekiah 2700 years ago, whether it's for offensive tactics or defensive tactics, underground urban warfare uh, was a key part of conquering and then preserving and protecting Jerusalem. Yeah, you could almost take my job and teach my classes or do my podcast. That was amazing. And I can't agree, as I'm writing down, even now, we assume in urban warfare today that the defender has the advantage. Usually true, but if you're the attacking force, there's more than one way to attack a city. Um, and besieging a city is is almost, and my good friend Amos Fox talks about how the siege has returned today in many aspects in modern urban warfare. But this explanation of ancient ways to change the balance of what people believe is the dominant form of warfare. And, and I think my friend Drew, who's the head geologist for the UK military, would have a heart attack to be able to go down in Gihon Spring and walk this path where these two separate sets of engineers in old times meet in the middle. That's a, I mean, it's just a, such an amazing story and that it isn't just a story. It's archaeologically backed and they actually left a message saying, this is what we did. This is where we did it. It's almost unbelievable, but it, it's true. Yeah, it's not simply a matter of faith. It's a matter of fact. And the lessons are there for us to learn from today. Because if you imagine Jerusalem 2,700 years ago, you know the Assyrian army is coming. And Hezekiah undertakes, uh, scholars believe today was a four-year project. And you know you're, you're, it's a race against the clock, that if you don't finish this tunnel in time, your city is going to fall. And somehow they're able to carry out this project that even scholars today still don't exactly know how they were able to do it. It's one of the both longest and most ancient tunnels of antiquity. And you go back a little more than a decade ago, uh, in Boston, you had a project called the Big Dig, where they were renovating downtown Boston with the highways, tunneling and everything. And with the most modern advanced technology, you had the two teams of engineers that are working on this tunnel. They just miss each other, which just goes to show that, you know, even with the best technology, sometimes these things just don't work out. And you go back on literally the war is at your doorstep and you have to engineer a 500 plus meter long tunnel or else your city's going to die. So that's pretty intense. And like you said, it's not just because it says so in the Bible, but all the archaeology backs up just about every aspect of this incredible story. And it's, as you mentioned, most people, when they think of the origins of tunnel warfare, they go back 2,000 years ago, around the time of Jesus, to the Roman conquest of Jerusalem. And we're already talking about two examples, one that's 1,000 years before that, another one that's 700 years before that, that the tactics in Jerusalem are very much dependent on the terrain and coming up with clever and unique ways both to conquer as well as how to protect the city. And that really has not changed uh, over the last 3,000 plus years. And touching on the example that, that you mentioned uh, from 2,000 years ago, uh, in the year 70, the Romans will conquer Jerusalem. They will destroy the temple, the second temple uh, that stood atop the Temple Mount. And during that time and the years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jews in Judea, which was the name of the country at that time, with its capital being Jerusalem, they launched what became known as the Great Revolt. This was the revolt of the Jewish people against the Roman occupation of their country and of their capital city, Jerusalem. And what ended up happening was just like later on, as you mentioned, in future revolts like the Bar Kokhba revolt some six decades later, the rebels tried using underground warfare, tunnel warfare. And one of the examples of that was beneath the pilgrimage road, which is what I call the biblical superhighway that runs through the city of David 
there were sewers, there were drainage channels. And this was a place where both Jewish fighters and also refugees sought refuge from the Roman soldiers, from the Roman legionnaires. And they were hiding. Some of them ended up using this tunnel system to escape Jerusalem and end up going out to the desert fortress Masada. But eventually the Romans learn about this and they close off the exit point. And the historian Josephus speaks of 2,000 Jews hiding in the sewers beneath the pilgrimage road in the city of David in Jerusalem. And the Romans find out about it. And they come with sledgehammers and they break open the flagstones of the pilgrimage road. And they find these 2,000 Jews hiding there. Archaeologists find whole cooking pots, meaning the people who were there were living there for days, perhaps weeks, maybe even for months. Any of your listeners are, are familiar with the Holocaust and the idea of Jews hiding from the Nazis in sewers. This was the same story just 2,000 years earlier in Jerusalem. And what archaeologists understand what happened there is when the Romans found all those 2,000 Jews hiding in the sewers, well, they didn't actually want to go down into the sewers and have to fight them in the sewers. That was not something that tactically was going to serve their interests. And so what they would do is they would strategically break open portions of the pavement of the flagstone and light fires and put smoke down into the system, which then forced either the people to go out, in which case they would be killed, or to keep going lower and lower, at which point the Romans kept putting up more and more walls until eventually they created a kill zone and they killed the last 2,000 Jews of Jerusalem in the year 70. So as you mentioned, here's a more modern example, only 2,000 years ago, of how tunnel warfare was being used both by the defenders of Jerusalem, but ultimately it was used against them by the occupiers and conquerors of Jerusalem, the Romans, who understood they came up with tactics how to fight back against this form of tunnel warfare. Yes, yeah, so again, an amazing story that I had never heard of. Of course, I heard about the Great Revolt, but in this story of the sewage and you walking me to the actual flagstones and showing me the broken ones that are systematically broken on purpose to get at the people underground to include Roman swords are found, if I remember right, down there. Can you talk to us about this site, this story, and the site that backs it up was a relatively new find? Can you talk to me about this site? And again, another mind-blowing experience is you showing us the site. So in 2004, there's a sewage pipe at the southern end of the city of David. This sewage pipe explodes and it leads to the discovery because when you have a sewage pipe exploding in Jerusalem, in the city of David, you don't only send in construction crews, you also have to send in archaeologists. The archaeologists come in, they're supervising while the construction crews are doing their work. And the archaeologists, they begin to hear scraping and scratching. It doesn't sound right. It turns out that in repairing the sewage pipe, the construction crews end up uncovering a series of stone steps 2,000 years old, going back to the time of Jesus, that led down to the very famous and significant Pool of Siloam, which biblically is very significant to Jews and Christians alike. And the archaeologist said, if the Pool of Siloam, which was the main ritual bath that pilgrims some 2,000 years ago, before going up to the temple on the pilgrimage festivals, like Passover, like Pentecost, like Tabernacles, where they would purify before going up to the temple. So they said, if we know where the Pool of Siloam is at the southern end of the city of David, and we know where the temple stood on the Temple Mount, a half mile to the north, so the question was, how did everyone get from the Pool of Siloam up to the Temple Mount? The archaeologists widened the excavation, and what they uncover is the beginnings of the pilgrimage road. The road that most likely the ancestors of most of the people listening to this podcast right now, their ancestors, this is the road, whether you're Jewish or Christian, 2,000 years ago, this is the road that your ancestors walked on when they went up to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And you could see along the pilgrimage road, the flagstones that are still totally intact that were placed there some 2,000 years ago, still in mint 
perfect condition. You can see where the archaeologists are uncovering those stones, the pottery literally just falling out of the wall, out of the excavations. And you can see the broken flagstones where the Romans shattered the flagstones in an effort to both discover and smoke out those last rebels, those last refugees of Jerusalem. And as you mentioned, John, one of the things archaeologists find is a Roman sword and scabbard, presumably one that was used to kill those last 2,000 Jews of Jerusalem. But what's inspiring is something else that was found along the pilgrimage road, as well as inside the drainage channel and in the sewers, which are ancient coins, small little bronze coins. And scholars have long wondered why each year of the Great Revolt were the rebels, were the Jewish fighters minting these coins? Because at that time, the coins had no monetary value. And if they really wanted to fight the Romans, what should they have used the metal for? To make weapons. So why were they minting these seemingly worthless coins? Now, first, it's important to understand what does it say on the coins? So one, it has the date. Uh, the coin that we saw together, John, uh, when we were there along the pilgrimage road in the city of David, was a coin dated to the second year of the Great Revolt, which corresponds to the year 67 of the common era. And on this coin in Hebrew writing, it says for the freedom of Zion. Zion, of course, being another name for Jerusalem. So why were they minting these coins? An answer that I heard, which I find to be meaningful, is that the last defenders of Jerusalem during the Great Revolt, culminating in the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70, they believed that even though Jerusalem was likely going to fall to the might of the great Roman Empire, to the might of the Roman legionnaires, that one day in the future, their descendants would return and find these coins and know what their ancestors lived and died for, for a free Jerusalem. And 2,000 years later, Jerusalem is the capital of the Jewish state of Israel, open to people of all faiths and backgrounds. And, you know, if you want to talk about a different kind of, you know, underground warfare, in a certain sense, that's what this story represents, because these last fighters of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, they knew that the odds were not on their side, but they left something buried, a buried treasure, a message for the future, a hope, a dream, a wish, a prayer of what they valued and what they hoped that one day would be restored. And that was a free Jerusalem. And it would take nearly 2,000 years. But as we saw together, as we walked along the pilgrimage road and walked throughout the city of David, the stories of Jerusalem, the stories of the city of David, of the biblical heritage of Jerusalem, uh, of all the amazing, incredible battles and urban warfare and tunnels and, and so on, they're all being unearthed. They're all coming back to tell their story. And that's what we learned from history. The reason we know what we know today is because the people who came before us, they left a message for us. They left almost a time capsule, these moments frozen in time that were able to come and whatever your faith, learn from them. Whether you're learning a spiritual message, whether you're learning a historical message, or whether you're learning a, a military strategic tactical message, it's thanks to the people who came before us who left us these messages, left us their wisdom for us to be better people today because of it. And that's what's so special about a place like the city of David, that whatever your motivation is for coming to visit, you're going to walk away with something. You might be spiritually uplifted. You might leave a smarter, historically, culturally more worldly person. But you know, I've gotten to host many, many military veterans and active duty members who have come through the city of David over the years who have been stationed in the region. And I believe that the many stories and, and many excavations that are so connected to the ups and downs of Jerusalem, the battles, the histories, the conquest, there's really something that we all can be taking away from a place like the city of David, whatever it is that our background is and whatever it is that we're hoping to learn from such an experience.
I can't agree more and I can't, and who am I, but I'm telling everybody now, again, why this meeting you and visiting the site was so almost like I'm ashamed that I didn't know about it and ashamed that it wasn't on our number one on our visit list. And if we return, which hopefully, I mean, the only reason I was there in Israel was to do a reconnaissance or preparation for potentially bringing West Point cadets there because every summer we go out and visit contemporary battles. We've been, you know, I led cadets through the attack of Mumbai and Mumbai, India. We've been to the Ukraine, Georgia, Sri Lanka. We've been all around the world. Every summer during the cadets break, we take cadets there and we almost do an active research project combined with what we call a staff ride. We walk through a recent battle and there's no shortage of warfare in Israel to study. But the fact that I didn't start at the city of David because of how much, especially from my area of expertise in urban warfare, in underground warfare, that really understanding whether it's a modern city like Mumbai or a modern city in conflict, you talk Marari, Mosul, you name a conflict today, you have urban aspects. And then every urban environment has an underground aspect. And to look at these tunnels, the 2000 plus years old, and like you were saying, the pilgrimage road, when you say sewer, I don't want people to think you know, like sewage pipe. It was a full stand up straight walk down built a long, long time ago that you could walk through just like a tunnel you'd find today. That's right. Could you briefly discuss because I think it's also fascinating. Again, I'm an underground, let's say, student junkie, but you took us to this archaeological site, an active archaeological site. And I think it was, I have never been into one that is completely underground on purpose. And the engineering that I saw that makes that possible, and why would you do that? One of the challenges in a place like Jerusalem, and certainly in the city of David, where up until a little more than a century ago, everyone thought the original biblical city of Jerusalem, the city of David, the place where Jerusalem began, everyone thought it was in the wrong place. So I imagine everyone listening has, you know, at some point lost their car keys or lost something else. We actually lost Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that has significance to billions of people, we lost it. Because when Jerusalem ends up being destroyed in the year 70 and it's being rebuilt, it's being rebuilt primarily in the area of the old city today. And people forgot that there was ever a reason to be down in the city of David in the first place. And so we are uncovering this city, but at the same time, you have a modern city that's there. It is today, the city of David is a mixed Jewish Arab neighborhood. And so you have people living in the city. You have shops and stores and cars and buses and kids going to school and parks and playgrounds. And it's all sitting atop perhaps one of the most significant pieces of real estate on the planet with significance. I would say there probably is not a half mile with more significance to more people than the city of David. And yet on top of it, you have a neighborhood. And so on the one hand, you have the people who are living there today who you want to respect them. On the other hand, you have heritage, antiquities that are beneath the surface that have significance to billions of people around the world. And how do you balance the desire to uncover that heritage while still respecting the modern city? And the answer is, of course, in Jerusalem with great sensitivity. Great, There's political sensitivity, there's religious sensitivity, cultural, environmental, urban sensitivities. And these are all factored into the excavations. And the excavation that we saw together, one of them, the pilgrimage road, is literally just beneath the neighborhood. And so you have this half mile long excavation that is uncovering the ancient biblical superhighway, but you have homes above. And now, obviously, this is all in coordination with the Israel Antiquities Authority, the body that oversees all the archaeological excavations in the country. Of course, everything is 100% legal, and that's being carried out. It's not where you have just a bunch of people who are just going beneath people's homes, but the engineering that goes into these excavations, because normally archaeology is top down, but because you can't clear out what's above, because you have 
thousands of people living there, you have to instead go side to side. And so you need to put a lot of engineering work in to allow the excavation to take place. And so it's another form of this urban underground, not warfare, but in a certain sense, using that technology to bring the history, to bring the stories, to bring the antiquities of Jerusalem to life. The reason that we're able to talk about what happened 2,000 years ago when the Romans conquered Jerusalem and what happened in the tunnel warfare is because of this engineering technology. It's bringing the story of those battles of the conquest of Jerusalem to life in a way that really even a decade or two ago, technologically speaking, would not have been possible. And so that's one of the incredible things that on the one hand, to be a student of history, but on the other hand, to use the modern tools of technology to allow us to connect with that history in meaningful ways. That when we learn about Jerusalem, when we learn about these ancient civilizations and how they were conquered or defeated and so on, well, what are the lessons that we can apply to our lives today using the technology and resources that we have at our disposal that you know our ancestors did not have at that time? And so that's really what's going on in the city of David is bringing this ancient civilization that's really still alive because the civilization of Jerusalem from 2000 plus years ago, their descendants, whether it's Western civilization, whether it's Jews or Christians, whether it's the Judeo-Christian heritage that are the foundation stones, the bedrock that the United States, the founding fathers established it on, all roads lead back to Jerusalem. And that's what we are uncovering in the city of David. Again, whether it's spiritual enlightenment, historical enlightenment, military tactical enlightenment, those are all the things that we're using modern technology through the archaeology and engineering to uncover today. Yeah, and it's amazing to see the steel arches underground holding up the whole city above it while you're digging out a road that was open air in the sunlight. And one day, I know I had the honor of seeing this site before it's open to public. I know it's not open to the public and won't be for a little while, if not years, to walk the road. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, even no matter how religious you are. I know that you said on the Temple Mount, many of the most sacred sites to Christians and others are general areas. Like we know that, let's say, Jesus' crucifixion, it happened here. But how you said that you were asked, well, what probability would Jesus and the people of that time have walked this street? And it's statistically 100% just based on the nature of the Pool of Siloam. And like you said, walking up the pilgrimage road, but to be standing underground on that road, almost like perfectly preserved, seeing ash from the wall of the fires the Romans made to destroy Jerusalem, having the reflection. And now I have a new starting point for multiple aspects of military strategy, urban warfare, especially about what I think is a major gap in our own scholarly work is about defending cities, even as of today, what's required, what type of thinking and creativity has to go into that, rerouting an entire water source that's more than just creative. It's a feat of engineering amazement. I can't thank you enough for giving me this experience. And hopefully now I can share this with our podcast with everybody else. Absolutely. And and anyone who's listening to this, the City of David is pre-COVID. We had uh, over a million visitors in 2019. And, and God willing, once this pandemic is behind us, we're looking forward to people being able to come back and experience this site. And so I would say certainly many, I imagine, of your listeners are, are listening with an ear for the military strategy and tactics. And one of the things that I've, I've learned just in, in my own knowledge from trying to learn more about military history and, and books I've read is the worst thing that will bring down any nation, any military force is hubris. And thinking that you know everything, that you're smart and you're powerful and no one can teach anything and no one is better than you. And once you start feeling like that, your days are numbered. And one of the powerful things that 
I've learned through learning about military history and also the history of Jerusalem and every day in the city of David is that we're standing on the shoulders of giants. It doesn't matter what your faith is to look at what happened in a place like Jerusalem thousands of years ago, both from the engineering and from the military conquest and strategy and the spiritual development and so on. There's so much we could learn from all the people who came before us that we are who we are today and where we are today because of the many, many great people who came before us. And we have so much to learn from them in so many different areas of life. And I have no doubt that for all the people listening here, when it comes to how they're trying to be more successful in what they're trying to do when it comes to urban planning, urban tactics and warfare and strategy, there is so much to learn from ancient civilization, including and particularly in Jerusalem, in the city of David. And to the extent that I can be helpful to you, John, or any of your listeners, certainly feel free to reach out and we would look forward to hosting you hopefully here in person soon. And if not, finding ways to share the resources of these incredible lessons with your listeners in other virtual ways. Ziev, I couldn't have said it better and I can't thank you enough. This has been amazing. And I know that our listeners are just going to eat it up. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.